Hello, Nick. Welcome. Hey, Marcos. Great pleasure to talk, to yes. see you. Yes. Yeah. You know, I've been doing this this podcast as sort of as a reaction to the fact that, um, you know, musicians like us, we're not, you know, on stage anymore. Well, right. you you have you have your own club, um, Exil in Zurich, and you you still get to play Monday nights, right? Uh, under under special circumstances, I guess. I don't know what the rules are for you right now in in Switzerland. Um, but for me, it's been really like a it's almost a year now without a live show, um, and <laughs> it's it's really it's really crazy, you know. Like before I started touring much, I was touring almost yeah. nothing, you know. But now, but yeah, it's it's crazy. It's like going back to an old life. And how how is that for you nowadays? Well, first of all, uh, we are in Zurich, uh, in Switzerland, we have similar uh, rules like in Germany at the moment. So everything is closed. Uh, theaters, venues, live stages are all closed, at least in, in other months we uh, expect or even more. And that's since uh, October, the case. So also my club is closed we uh, just continued with the Monday series with the concert every Monday uh, by our live stream. We did that actually already before the pandemic. We had a, a partner, YourStage.Live, who was experimenting with uh, underground, interesting uh, off-culture shows. And we started that already two years uh, before the crisis broke out. So we were really good prepared. And last year also in spring, when everything was closed, we were continuing with, with the live stream. And now we are also continuing. So we have with the bands, sometimes also a smaller uh, uh, lineup, we have the possibility to play uh, still every week for that live stream. We are rehearsing. And uh, that's, as you said, is very important so that we, you know, we can keep the shape and also be a bit um, really on the on the concert uh, front to mm -hmm. still experiment with our music under live conditions. Mm -hmm. For me personally, of course, I didn't travel also uh, anymore, and um, we had uh, just a phase that was ended with the last Ronin record of Asse. We were touring a lot, so we expected 2020 to be a, a lit little more calm, although we would have, of course, many concerts. But so it didn't hit us in the middle of a tour. Uh, but also for us, it's a big challenge uh, since, as you know, a working band needs to play and needs to continuously play and also do tours to grow as a team. Yes, yes. And I, I don't know how you run your band financially, but it's also, um, you know, like you, you need to have the income to keep keep things rolling and uh, and like the musicians in the band they have are sort of like dependent on the structures that uh, you know that the touring circuit kind of like provides and uh, exactly. yeah and uh, it's yeah it's it's challenging so you know um, I don't really want to spend too much time talking about the pandemic and what what it really what it does to us but we will probably always come come back to it a few times like my main idea really for today is to maybe kind of like go into details that are not so interesting for the general public. <laughs> um, okay. So, and, and, you know, um, 
I, I, I really didn't, you know, even though we, we talk almost every week, I didn't know you had the new solo album coming out, um, right. which will come out in a few weeks, right? In March. Yeah. And, and, um, so I, I listened to the preview, uh, track. And so first of all, what, what kind of piano is that? Which brand of piano? Uh, this is a Steinway, but it, it was the old Steinway that actually was at the studio, radio studio Lugano, and uh, producer Manfred Eicher and myself had the chance to check uh, two pianos in there. There's a more modern one that might be a bit lighter and, and uh, a bit brighter also, but we both actually liked the old one very much that had uh, that was more colorful and, for my taste, more responding with the space. Uh, so it has its challenges, but it also gives a lot to work with and to, to really listen into the sound. I felt just more comfortable with that, and we both agreed when we decided which piano to take that this is the one. Yeah, I, actually, it's the same that is on Continuum, I think, also on the, the Mobile album, but I did not know that in the beginning. Interesting, yeah, because I, I, I think the, the record, or at least the one track I heard, sounds so incre incredibly soft texture, tex texturally. It would really, um, right. um, I would even say it's like a new sound, a little bit of a new sound for you. Um, yeah, true. I mean, that has also to do with the fact, I'm, I'm happy that you heard that and you, you checked it out because it has, of course, to do with the fact that I play alone, which means I can also bring in all the qualities that have uh, uh, that I uh, learned and uh, developed over the years uh, from classical chamber music and the, the sound culture that with a little kind of touch already create things, but with attack, with listening, with movements, you can vary in a really huge thing. And for example, when I play with mobile or with uh, more percussion instruments, but especially then with Ronin Amplified, this variety is very different. It's it's a different, almost a different instrument how I treat it when I play. But by uh, playing a, a piano in the way I work with composition and improvisation um, can really show the whole variety in a... Uh, uh, correspondence in in work with the instrument that also gives you a lot of back what you bring into yes um you know i i say that like with this background that i first heard you play live in 2006 i think that's when we met so it's uh 15 years that we've known each other and i think just the development that you have made um in your compositional style and also the way you you lead the band and also you could say even the style that the band plays in which is which is very interesting um so now arriving at this 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 pure uh acoustic piano um grand piano sound which has this these wonderful wonderfully soft um kind of like almost pastel colors um which which sort of obviously then reminds me of uh, of say like Debussy, you know, like in a way is mm -hmm. um, um, I, f I find it's it's a really really interesting and sort of um, I, have, I have to say uh, unexpected direction, and yeah. um, and it's 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 really it's really wonderful and so so just because I'm I'm curious. Um, um, 
in the production of that that record, the recording, um, was there anything special about that, or was that sort of like a straight straight setup? It's quite straight. We have just two mics there, and uh, there's also not a lot of treatment of the sound. But with what uh, we were working together with sound engineer Stefano Omerio, who usually does the more classical or uh, the, the the recordings in that setting, um, we worked a lot on how the the piano is placed uh, in the space. Of course, there are also ambient mics there, mm -hmm. but uh, how that we felt actually comfortable to play what came back to my ears from the space, mm -hmm. but also how this uh, was then um, seen and heard in in the in the studio um, from the producer and the sound engineer, so that we had an optimal kind of acoustic atmosphere that I felt comfortable to play, but also that had the right resonance and the. Uh, Radio Studio Lugano is a beautiful studio that is actually mainly for classical music or, or chamber music, jazz and things. There are legendary recordings, also classical piano recordings made in there. And uh, as you know, it depends sometimes if the piano is a little bit more to the right or to the left, what comes back. You cannot mark this and it's every time the same it depends very much on the mo momentum what happens in there and we took our time to organize that and then uh, it was quite natural what comes back from the playing from this attitude of listening and from a a, a natural way of of let's say old school way of how you work with music no no cuts no uh, mm -hmm. yeah. no men, no not many takes i have i think three first takes on the record and uh, the others were second takes or so so that was for us very important to accept what is there but with highest attention and uh, focus and joy of what then resonates Yes, yes. So how, how did you choose the, the pieces you wanted to uh, record? That's a very uh, important and precise question, actually, because I wanted to improvise and to work with my music that is quite structured and composition plays a big role. But of course, over the last decades, almost, I started to really work freely with that, especially when I'm alone and I can go wherever I like. I wanted to create a, a record that has an outlook to the future in a way that I can really freely treat the composed material, but also shows the now in terms of what I can do. I think I was really on the on a good level of what I can can play. I cannot play better, but I also um, usually don't play worse. <laughs> so what we hear on the record is quite the level I can do now. But also, uh, it's a, a record that looks back, and I wanted to create some recordings of reference, like, for example, for Module 5 and Module 26 and Module 13 that are on the record also, because these pieces start to be played by other pianists more and more from the classical field, but also in the in-between field of uh, jazz players or time players and classical players. And I wanted to give a, a recording of reference, like we have so many actually on ECM also, that show a piece on the level how it's done, played mm -hmm. by the composer or a, a close a group close to the composer. 
so I wanted to to show this mix and have also one piece on the record that gives uh, um, respect to the bands and to my work with ECM over uh, the last time. Actually, when we met 2006, our first record came out, uh, Store, the first Ronin record on, on ECM. So the last piece that has a different name is kind of a, a, a referenced look back uh, of this story behind this name, um, Déjà Vu Vienna, is of course hidden a module. And this module was one of the most important from the band in relation to ECM. Mm -hmm. And it is a piece that it has at the end of the record that looks back to the beginning of the record. So it has also this relation, like in a film when all the names are coming and uh, you know, at the end you reflect what happened in the film. This last piece is also for that. So for me, it was a record that sh that showed all these aspects, and I knew I could not force that. So I was a bit, yeah, I was in high expectation what will happen, but finally to accept what comes out of the resonance of the moment helped us a lot to create that finally round dramaturgy of the whole record. Interesting, because I, I obviously I have no idea which tracks are on the album, but you're saying that there's one that is not called a module, but that right. references the module and has sort of like more of a conceptual, uh, well, uh, or more, more concrete title, but at the same time, it's more of a mystery if people don't know exactly. what it's referring to. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I That probably happens when you usually have just modules and then suddenly there's a title. <laughs> yes, exactly. Maybe also a bit self-ironic, but also in a deep way. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So um, it sounds to me as if it's sort of like a, a review, as you say, of material and also like this... this um, Term uh, reference recording, which you which you've used quite a few times, also in our discussions, and um, I think it's a bit similar, like on your record, uh, on my label, where you wanted to show what you actually did in a certain time and on what level this already was, and how uh, you thought about music in that time. So, although it's a newer recording, mm -hmm. you were referring to your development and showing in a way. Uh, what, how far this already was in the very beginning, and then people can relate it to your development. So uh, this is sometimes very difficult to do on one record, but for me it was this tension between the, the, the outlook to the future, for me as a player, um, to work with improvisation, composition and interpretation, but also looking back and saying this is a... a uh, recording of reference for some of my compositions. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it, you're also totally naked on that record, being just the sole performer with, right. you know, like you say, no edits and uh, and yeah. So um, maybe you know, like the 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 interesting aspect about being a musician, I find, is that uh, a lot of people. Um, that hear the music or, you know, they, they project ideas, they project their ideas and also their understanding of, of musical concepts or also of musical ability um, in very, very interesting and sometimes very, very various ways. And um, so one of the uh, comments that I've always found to be like really, really 
bizarre about music is when people say this is simple music, right? Yeah. Like the word mm -hmm. simple. And when it comes to what you do, like even if we take the simplest module, right? Yeah. But the way you execute it is like the word simple um, has no place there initially. So I think like you have like the sort of, you've acquired a sort of effortlessness within this uh, field and this sort of approach um, that you among others kind of like have pioneered. Um, but I really have so much respect for the fact that you have really, really, really made something look extremely easy and sound fluent and light and simple yeah. Yeah. that is really in a way um, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because like, I'm just going to use this word, <laughs> which is sort of like in a way, a little bit superhuman. Yeah. Yeah. Be and I say that because in, and I'm not talking generally, like maybe, maybe not 150 years ago, like uh, an artist, like a musician would have time to practice, I don't know, like 12 hours per day for 40 years. Right. But it's not like that anymore. And so yeah. uh, Nick Berch as a father and like a businessman and, uh, you know, all these things that you do and you at the same time, uh, you know, you still manage to be on that high level, but not just stay there, but you go further and you kind of yeah. like demonstrate that with this new solo record. I find that um, very fascinating and I would like to talk with you about that. So how do you do what you do? Well, uh, thank you, first of all, but... I think that's a challenge we all have. First, I like in the English language, there's the difference between simple and simple-minded. We don't have that in German, actually, uh, in German, actually but uh, simplicity can be used as a form of clearness, directness, uh, honest way of playing on your level, or it can be used as, as a strategy to say things have to be simple and people are not so intelligent or you know music is too complex we need to make it simple so that's for me more simple-minded it just shows a certain mind attitude that's not what i'm looking for and we are not looking for we are looking to a simplicity that has a clearness and through this speaks very directly and this not does not necessarily mean that it's not complex under the surface so for us as players, this tension, I think, is important. We want to have a certain, we're looking for a certain mastership. We're working on our level constantly as composers, as players. Um, and that's the way of simplicity. Finally, we have, you call it effortlessness. It just shows what happens. We all know that we see a performer and the guy is on the edge and we fear a bit, you know, <laughs> he's sweating and we fear with him as an audience. That's one level. Uh, next level is that somebody plays really eclectic and you think you never could do that yourself. It's too extreme. The guy is a genius. And then we have the third level when you just listen and you don't think about all of that. You just enjoy the music. Everything works natural. You had a good evening, but... Then when you, after the concert at home and in, the, in bed, you feel a certain clearness and connectedness to everything because it was just there. You were on the right spot. 
everything happens. So that's what I'm, I'm looking for. And I think we all do when we play music because we want to make a, a concert where everybody thinks I'm at the right place on the earth now in that moment. <laughs> that's also, uh, I think, our job as players to, to support this feeling of togetherness mm-hmm. in a space. So this is very important. And then the next point you named was the, the, the superhuman thing, which I think does not tend so much into the direction of a guy is a, a genius because he or she can do something really extraordinary. But it shows more that, more that you transcend your ego and you transcend the way of seeing yourself in the center by making music. And I think what we are uh, looking for when we are as solo players in connection with the music, but also when we play as a band, as a, a higher organism, we are looking to trans- for transcending this ego attitude. To put, it's not necessarily bad, you know, an ego and the eye is also uh, helps for several things in everyday life. And this, I, I don't think so, so much Zen Buddhistic, this is bad or good. Uh, I just think it doesn't help in certain situations when we want to be really directly connected with music. And that's uh, what I find interesting when you call that superhuman. It is a way of uh, um, trying to to be there for the music and for the resonance, for the partnership between a listener and a player. And as we know, the player should also be the listener sometimes uh, to really reflect what's happening. Now, this state of presence uh, is what I'm looking for. And you're right, especially in this uh, 5812, the first piece on the record that is already now out uh, that you can have a listen, has this very beautifully in. It's a connection of the player with the music and not so much of Nick as a genius or important guy in music business or whatever. It just happens on the level of natural uh, love for for resonance and for connection for each other. And this is why we try to train the playing, why I also have to find as a father, as a businessman, as a band leader, as a composer, my time to dedicate to this attitude by playing and training. And you can do that on a high level that you don't need 12 hours of, of uh, um uh, rehearsing or or repetition or training, you can do that in a few hours and also in phases and you can dedicate your life to several things that actually help for that attitude, we, uh, like for example some sort of movement training or martial arts in my case or whatever. Then the muscles in connection with the mind can create that uh, uh, connection very directly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I I understand what you mean, but let's let's go um, and be a little more concrete, okay? So if we just 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 uh, think about the way that you practice or prepare, let's say prepare yeah. uh, a recording like this solo album, how do you do that? Well. That's a bit of a special case. I waited for years for the right moment for such a, a solo album. And I made a lot of experiences in the last few years by playing solo, uh, smaller audiences, bigger audiences, bigger spaces, amplified solo play, not amplified solo play. So I collected a lot of uh, life experience 
compared to my first solo album, which I did, I think, in 2002 or something. And uh, then this moment came in the development of the bands, because when you do a solo recording, you have also to be too careful, in my case, that uh, it is not in competition with the bands. I mean, the bands are very important. Mobile as an acoustic band and Ronin as a, an amplified, more direct band. And I don't want to uh, disturb these developments by suddenly only doing solo. It's, it's another aspect of the way how I work. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, I thought, I think in terms of what I wanted to say, it was time for a, a solo recording. And I also don't know how much, how long I cannot do all of that. So I thought it's a good mo moment. I'm, I'm more felt it in a way. And it also uh, resonated with uh, ECM and producer Manfred Eicher. And so we created that solo record. So on one hand, I was prepared already since long, mm -hmm. since I had a lot of shows. I had these big shows uh, in New York or in London at the Barbican together with uh, visual artist Sophie Clements where we developed a certain setup for the for the piano and I was in a different role as a player also than in a normal classical hall or jazz club. Uh, but on the other hand, my way of physically training also uh, changed in the last years and I usually prepare uh, practicing uh, by a lot of, of uh, physical things, uh, physical exercises without the piano. Mm -hmm. uh, so this has more to do with flow, uh, flow training, attitude, uh, breathing, way of, of sitting, acting on the piano, uh, feeling that here in the whole body. Usually this takes 30 minutes to an hour before I start to practicing. Uh, and then maybe I practice for... 45 minutes or something, make a break, drink something, move again. Uh, and then maybe another hour and then it's okay. That's enough. Then I'm super warm and things flow. And when I do that over certain days, it already gives my fingers a really a big presence that I can do what I want. Um, but when you really train for a recording, then maybe I have another hour or two uh, later in the day where I do that or or I go for walking or doing things that keep my whole body more in flow. Mm -hmm. So that's the practical thing. Um, of course, I do a lot of stuff also on the piano, but also they're trying more to work on the on the movements coming out of the center and not so much on the like, you know, technical aspect that is here in the fingers. It's more uh, about connection with the body. Mm -hmm. And the way I, I practice and play and develop that has also to do a lot with the fact how I listen and how I can enjoy that and be really there. And when I feel that I get exhausted or, or um, 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 distracted too much by my own thoughts or something else, then I stop and try to find this attitude again. Like this, I can actually use less time with high intensity to to uh, really be honest in finding my presence with the with the instrument now this sounds easy and you can of course work on that with meditation and a lot of uh, physical training 
but it has also to, to do with a lot of experiences under difficult com conditions or with uh, life experiences that were really difficult for me. Injuries with my back, with the uh, arms, personal things in my personal life, uh, uh, to deal with children's situations, with pain and things like that. So all of that helps me to enjoy the moment of practicing very much. Uh, it's it's the, the, the how I feel that in the body that I have now time and space to practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you know that since you have now also a child and it's beautiful, but it's also a challenge. And suddenly when you're with your instrument, it gives you also a certain different perspective on it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So when you like this mode of um, um, practicing that you just described, where you work, you know, on movements and with the body first, and then you go to the instrument and you take a break and you go back to the instrument, etc., etc. Cetera, et cetera. Uh, do you usually uh, is that sort of like a routine you try to do like most of the time, or is this something where you could say, okay, maybe sometimes you have like a few weeks where you don't play at all, and then you kind of like get back to it, or have you kind of like managed to install this as sort of like a continuous activity, let's say, in your life? I would say usually is it's really good to have a continuity also for the, the body. The older you get, the more this is actually important. Mm -hmm. I include also a lot of rhythm training with shakering and polymetric uh, uh, training in the body, sometimes with the instrument, sometimes uh, alone, just standing or things like that. Mm -hmm. So the continuity is really important. So it's better to do every day a bit than everything at once. That's totally clear. But there are phases, like now I'm, I'm finishing a book about actually a lot of these aspects too. So I had to take sometimes a few days of really intense working on the book where I couldn't practice it. But I always physically uh, moved. So mm -hmm. I always make stretching. I always do a a bit of, of flow training and things like that. Uh, otherwise, I, I just cannot think and lose myself very quickly. But in these phases, I'm not at the piano uh, very often. But but uh, uh, despite that intense phases, I try to constantly be a bit there, touch. The simple fact when I hear a note that I calm down helps me also to deal with the rest <laughs> of our challenges in life and that uh, heals me a little bit also when I have just time to listen to uh, some piano notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I recently had a conversation with um, a friend called Carl Sterling, who is a movement trainer for people with Parkinson's, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And um, in the conversation we came, um, you know, we got had the idea that also, like also thoughts are movements or you can, you can kind of like work with thoughts as if they were movements. And um, I'd be interested in getting your, your perspective for you being, I would say, like a real master in this field for like what people call polyrhythms, right? Or you, you, you play like loops of different durations sort of at the same time, which um, uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong, I guess like for me, it's, it's, it's sort of like a listening thing. So I like, I, I, I hear the parts and I can hear them independently and, and then the hands or the movements, they just, they can follow, uh, the imagination even, you know, that's how it appears to me. But when it comes to like, like seeing thoughts as movements, I see that there's like the connect, there's like a connection 
um, which goes in both directions, like from the from the body to the mind, and also in the other direction. What, how how did you like? If you really look back, uh, quite uh, you know maybe even thirty 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 five years. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, how has your initial understanding of uh, what I think must have been your interest pretty early on in life? How has this changed? Well. These are several questions. First of all, I think yeah. 35 years ago, um, I was like 15. And this means there I was just very enthusiastic, training a lot. Uh, I started to really practicing a lot. I practiced usually six hours after school in that time for at least four or five years. Uh, and working on really classical development because I had no idea of classical music. But this also went into my own body. I was under strong tension and I've always felt the kinetic and rhythmic drive, but I did not know how to deal with it. And when I then started uh, studying classical music, which was a little wonder because I went to the exam and I had not really a lot of experiences compared to all these classical monsters. So I just did a modern music program <laughs> and they took me, I think, because of this And then I started to work in and move in this classical field of music. And it was really a challenge for me with all these uh, sonatas every week, a new piece, a big piece. And, and I came really on to the edge of, of my physical capacity and also of the mental capacity, because then when tension ri uh, rises, it gets complex. And I then started to do Feldenkrais method and started to do meditation and slowly developed into that uh, direction where I'm still um, today. And so I would say 25 years ago, I felt that really clearly that I have to change something. I felt my affinities to rhythms already long uh, as a child already. I also composed odd meter stuff as a child already, not consciously, but just I liked it. I was on a trip with my parents in Romania where we collected a lot of uh, records end of the 70s in communist Romania. So this was all, always there, but I didn't really uh, explore it so much. And then I changed the piano teacher because I had, I was lucky. I was in the pedagogic uh, section. I had a, a new teacher and she was so interesting how she told me how I should teach others that I thought I need to go directly to her. This was uh, Erna Ronka, my teacher, who actually studied with uh, Hubert Harry, a uh, British teacher uh, who was studying with Dino Lipotti, the Romanian um, known pianist, very interesting pianist, how he plays with his movements. So then I started to really relatively late learn how to move, how to listen and how to bring actually Uh, uh, music, mind and movement together. That's, by the way, also the title of the new book is called Listening, um, Music, Movement, Mind. And it's exactly about what you're talking about. So how can we bring that together? And how is a movement uh, um, influenced by the way we think, by the way we listen? So then the journey really started already a few years of Feldenkrais method, this new way of weight play uh, from the classical music background, starting doing Aikido and starting to go into more uh, uh, 
differentiated movement techniques like gyrotonic, gyrokinesis, where you also learn with your mind to find the relevant muscles and to know them and to to start to to uh, have your body under more control, but finally to let things flow. Mm-hmm. And then we are coming into a really interesting connection with thoughts, direction, dramaturgy, feeling, body knowledge, uh, body thinking, uh, the, and the transitions are... Um, Fluid, mm-hmm. and that's where <laughs> where I still am. But I I I, li- I also watch a lot of films and my um, about what you were uh, talking about uh, with Carl Sterling about people who work with uh, other people who had problems or uh, disabilities and things. And my wife is also a shiatsu therapist and aikido teacher, and I learn a lot from there too. Uh, what happens and I try to include that in the way I train the music, uh, I communicate the music and I also from time to time teach some people Mm -hmm. in that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where has all of this taken you personally? Well, um, I I heard heard, uh, once I was in an exhibition about Japanese fashion in in Switzerland, uh, it, there's a fashion museum with mainly focus on fabrics and ways how fabrics are treated. And there, I read a, a sentence by a fashion de- designer Yoshi Yamamoto. He said, "I learned to accept my own style," <laughs> and <laughs> uh, that's somehow I think with that uh, solo record is now the point where I am. Looking back on this, also, I cannot explain many of the um, directions I took. I just can feel my affinities. And I'm maybe at that point at the moment where I, I, I start to accept this and enjoy it and also work on the awareness and attention for these things and also share it with others. Uh, for example, like you, people who, especially in my field, have found an own view on how to treat simple music, uh, how to work with simple structures that are creating an enormous uh, variety of possibilities. We had a lot of talks about that too. How much do we control this? How much do we let it just happen? What is the sound result? How can you do something like this in a band? what needs to be done uh, more in a solo position and all these questions, there are still for me on a, vi- a very high level. And I have the chance also with my wife, Andrea, to to develop more inside view on the way how a, a, a body is organized energetically and kinetically, not mainly intellectually uh, or physically. It is more about energetic, kinetic, uh, movement-oriented behavior. Yeah, and that's, that's really what I, what I think you are a real, real, real master at, like taking what to the outside, for, some, for most people, I would even say, seems like an intellectual uh, activity, um, you know, like I, you know, I, yeah. I, I have um, sort of like lots, lots of contact at the moment with younger people and with YouTube, and uh, you know, yeah. and I see that like really the 
the main uh, delusion, I have to really say, that a lot of young people have is that intellectually they understand everything. And they have this arrogance, arrogance of youth, which I love. I think it's, it's fantastic, right? Yeah. But as somebody who has worked through, you know, how do you actually get there to have, like you said, like the attitude and like the, uh, the, the non-intellectual properties to actually execute something um, of that, as you, we could say, uh, intellectual complexity or intellectual simplicity, depending on how you're looking at it, right? Yeah. But it has nothing to do, like, so, so the intellectual understanding of it has nothing to do with the ab ability to execute it. And, and that's, that's, what, that's what I always, always found so attractive about what you do, that, um, that it's, it's, in a way, it's deceptive music, or it's, it's a deceptive kind of art. It's like, it's, like um, it's, it's this, this uh, cliche of um, somebody um, who has no idea about painters, let's say, going into a gallery and saying, oh, I could do that myself, right? <laughs> So it's a, it's a little bit like that. Oh, and I, yep. Yeah, we call that in martial arts, we call that immediate feedback. It's when you stand there with your opponent and an attack is coming, you cannot explain what you do. You just have to move in a way. So usually you have freeze, uh, um, uh, flight or fight. Mm -hmm. So either you're on the shock or you're, you're running or you're going into the battle, but to smoothly work with the attack and do something like we do actually on stage when we play with a complex music, which is com something completely different than complicated music, mm -hmm. that's the, 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 the immediate feedback on stage. And I like to have that from martial arts, which is something else than street combat or something. It's really art. It's a way of how mind and movement works together. So we should uh, uh, differentiate it here also. Um, uh, so this immediate feedback is what, what we should be aware on stage also when we play. There is only one chance and there you better ready. And when you play a seven against a five against a four, your mind foxes you out so quickly when you don't incorporate or embody the pattern in a, a, a way that you really can freely and effortlessly deal with it. So to summarize, uh, simple and simple mind is not the same. Mm -hmm. Complex and complicated is not the same. We have a lot of complicated music out there, which is interesting, but it shows that it is complicated. While a lot of our music doesn't show that it's not necessary. It should be directly and sensual and grooving and giving a connection of a common code where we actually can share a, a very sensual and direct community uh, concert in a way. It, you, do, you don't need to be an insider, although you can dive into it and you know check it out on a deeper level. But as a player, of course, this uh, awareness uh, is... And knowledge is very important. Um, I recently discovered also the difference of repetition and reiteration. So we we call it sometimes looping, sometimes repetition. And in music, different music cultures, repetition is a really important term. So when something is repeated, it is clear, you know, you understand it because it's repeated. So when you repeat it over and over again, like in minimal groove, minimal music, uh, 
a lot of uh, uh, reductive concepts, then you should know why. And when we do that in groove music, of course, we want to have more flow. We want that the groove massage the band and the audience and that kinetically, energetically things are developing. So reiteration means repetition by always add something. Mm-hmm. And and that's super difficult because it needs presence, but it needs also relaxation. Mm-hmm. It needs focus. It mm-hmm. needs direction. Mm-hmm. It needs trust. But it needs also little risk. So this is very complex, and you cannot just intellectually understand that. That's a lot of training, a lot of experience, a lot of uh, also leaving things away to really go that that way and train that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I have personally had this experience that at some point in my life, what you just called like complicated music, for example, was just becoming boring to me for the reason that it, it was like the only, the only thing I would need in order to do the same thing, let's say, is time. Right. Yeah. So, so, and, and so now that we're talking about like what you're talking about, it's not just the time, as you say, it's not just the repetition, it's the reiteration. It's where you, you combine the experiencing with a, a certain kind of awareness that you sort of like have to have to re re instigate yeah. all the time, right? It's not, it's, it's not to, uh, it's not that you can expect for things to become totally automatic or you just, you just, you just train or practice so much that you don't even have to be present. Right. Which I think is sort of like a misunderstanding, uh, yeah. in the process of practice, um, where you would say, you know, the focus should be on becoming more present where others would say, okay, uh, I want to be less present and still be able to perform. Yeah. And, and I, I find that interesting. And I, I don't think that, that one way is better than the other, really. So like, like my, my whole yeah. uh, saying is that we need to learn to oscillate. Like, like we go between the state of total, uh, total association with our body and also with a state of total diso- disassociation, right? Uh, but like we need to be able to, to freely change between it, right? And, and um yeah i found that interesting especially the difference of of the different instruments you know when you're doing a physical thing on an electric guitar for example it's something else than when you do something on a on a a key on an acoustic piano Mm -hmm. it's not uh, something else in terms of that it doesn't need uh, similar mastership but the movement creates uh, something else and the distance to the sound is different yes, yes. <laughs> and and that i found very interesting also uh guitar players usually stand they have a lot of freedom by moving also on stage i usually sit sitting is not the best position kinetically to do things very often actually uh, a lot of our problems in society come from constantly sitting Mm-hmm. in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So when you sit on a piano, this way of staying flexible but grounded is a huge topic compared to somebody who is standing with a violin or a, a bass or something. 
also different to a drummer whose uh, chair usually is a bit smaller than on the piano and has more direct contact to all the drums. But we need to do this thing of, you know, going from one side to the other, which is for the back and everything, quite a challenge. Mm-hmm. So that I found also uh, very interesting when you're talking about oscillating, you know, who am I now as a, as a tool for the physical organization of playing and what's happening in my mind by listening. And we should, in any case, avoid that the challenge for the body uh, starts to decrease the listening capacity. So the mm-hmm. most important thing is the listening capacity. Then you better don't play and organize your listening first and then uh, your your act agile but this is the big challenge you know that your body is ready to listen and to act and then correspond with that with the mind mm-hmm. <laughs> and you've just finished writing your book about this well yeah it's it's big texts are done i have i'm now in the good situation to go over everything having uh, details more coherence and I also want that this is can be understood. I don't want to create an esoteric uh, way of talking about my music, but something that can be helpful for you, for also non-musicians, mainly by inspiring you uh, to, la- to launch your own creativity and also your way of training. So what I wanted to show is in a, in a clear but also modest way, just... That's how I did it. That's not the only way, and I'm still on that way. But so far, it's created a few interesting results, and these I want to share with you mm-hmm. because you probably have something to say about it from your own background. Yeah, that's that's great. So you you have basically, um, you're sharing the results, as you say, but you're also sharing ideas about the tools that you can employ to get results. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and um, in how far do you think um, have you kind of like created those tools yourself? Well, I'm more um, I'm more shaped them. You know, I have a lot of stuff from other people, and of course, uh, the the system of reference in the book is also very important. I learned from you, uh, as from exact, for example, from Cospar, with with whom I play since we were kids, mm-hmm. um, I I learned, of course, a lot from my teacher, but also from books and several um, sources. Also, a lot from actually uh, theater director Nora Somoini, who is my uh, stepsister. I learned a lot about how actors work together in in a way, you know, how they find their roles and their connections on the meta level of the roles and stuff. So I learned a lot by watching, having the chance to work with people. But I think I had a certain personal need of shaping these things and driving them into a direction that was necessary for myself. Mm-hmm. And I guess I created some results that are quite unique in the combination of these things. Not so much in that I invented this, but that I'm, I brought them together as a system of references that allow you again or somebody else to bring your own stuff in and to develop it and shape it in your way. So that's what, what I wanted to, to show. The, the book is not to show that I invented all of that stuff, but 
to more say how I worked with the system of references, what they meant to me and how they developed into a different di direction. Mm -hmm. uh, that's very important. And with this, it also uh, gives credit to, the, to some of the people who were mainly important for me, especially over a long period, not yeah. so much uh, like we meet all important uh, figures during our life. But the people who stay, that's quite something uh, interesting. People With people you find, although you have conflicts, you find ways of staying together, of still learning from each other. That's actually... One of the main interesting things also in my personal life that I found interesting to not quit, but to find ways together when you're in a conflict. Very good, because I, I think I for me, that's even the case with music itself, my, my relationship with music yeah. uh, or even the music I listened to when I was 10 years old or, you know, I think it's very important to kind of like always go back and learn from the fact that you have a very long uh, relationship. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, the basic message in the book. Also, you know, one and one is one that we should really check. It's never you just that did everything, invented everything or whatever. It's always minimum another figure. That's the, the, the law of life. Somehow it doesn't work. Otherwise we need yeah. a listener. We need a partner on stage. We need a partner to learn. We need a partner to fight, to have a conflict. And when we learn how to work with that fruitfully, uh, not to avoid this, there is conflict, violence, and all sorts of yeah. complex challenge. But when we learn how to deal with that and to go on and to share things in a respectful way, then then uh, I think we can maybe get wiser bit in 20, 30 years. <laughs> I, I, I completely agree with you. However, um, it's also fine <laughs> to, because you're, you're the person who, write this, who writes this book, right? So, and I know that, that you're not doing that alone. It's also, it's yeah. also a team. Um, uh, however, like this, I find, I find it important to also give credit to the idea and to the, you know, no matter how small the idea. So say you have like an exercise that your teacher showed, showed you when you were 18 and you have taken it and you have only changed one small parameter. Oh. And which I'm sure, sure there are things like this, right? So, but, but the fact that you have kind of like made the decision to change this and then to work with it kind of is something that I don't, I don't want to say that you need to get credit for that necessarily, but it's something that's worth presenting. Yeah. You're part of the inspiration chain. Yeah. That's also yeah. one of the, we know the, the, the added value chain from economy. We, we, uh, we should also be aware of all these chains, it's chains of chains of inspiration, chains of learning, um, uh, chains of, of respecting each other. So these are all chains and because they connect it, it's not just that they're next to each other, but this connection, that's what you were mentioning. You, yeah. you're part of that. And that, that has started <laughs> a few million years ago, but we are still in that, uh, uh, development. And, and so it's important to, as you say, appreciate your own contribution also, but be aware of that you're in a chain of, of uh, contribution. Yeah. yeah. And as a composer, Nick, um, 
you know, like in the arts, the uh, the term that's probably used is the one that's lineage, right? Like you, it's a line. You're coming from yep. a line of composers, or and yep. um, and uh, I haven't been that aware of my lineage for a while, and then I suddenly I understood. Okay, that's why I'm writing this kind of music, you know, and like. For me, it's like the Hindemith line of teachers, yep. you know. Right. And um, so, what 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 would you say is your lineage when it comes to composition? Well, that's that's a big question to now sort out here. But in the book, this is one of the main topics because the book is not so much about piano playing; it's about my background, band leading, composing, improvising together, mainly with others, and also. There is a one a little um, excursus about the groove lineage, but it's also a lot about the uh, lineage of classical composers. Um, of course, goes back very long when we talk about pattern composing starts in Baroque music or even earlier, mm -hmm. but then mainly coming from Stravinsky uh, to Bartok and. Um, Minimal composers, but also reductionist composers like Ligeti or uh, um, Morton Feldman, who are kind of individual figures. Now, in case of my music, nobody, you know, many people wrote about that because it was in the press text that I'm influenced by Morton Feldman, but actually don't hear it in music very obviously because <laughs> Morton Feldman's music is quite empty and beautiful, but when you read the book, you you see this relation, you know, what you what you said that you change something or you're listening or your attitude or affinity change something can also mean that you're very inspired by one figure, but that does not necessarily mean that your music sounds like this, which is actually even better. We don't want that the music sounds exactly like this and I compose Morton Femme music and just have a groove under it. That's not the point. We, of <laughs> course, have to digest things and to develop it and then we uh, partly, uh, in an ideal case, can name that lineage and we always forget a few things. That's also normal. Um, uh, but uh, the, the, it's not so good when we are victim of this lineage and we sound like the role models or something, if there were any role models. So it's our job also to differentiate and to listen into ourselves like we do as a composer, listen to the material. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah absolutely true you know this but but again like i can understand that people who are not themselves um and it's, it's difficult to put words for this like say um artistically inclined or who don't understand that they also do creative make creative contributions to the world yeah um, that some you know people like that may confuse the sound of your music with what your influences may have been, right? Uh, and then it turns out like you never listen to whoever, right? You yeah. have no even no idea that there's somebody who is using like a similar uh, similar voicings on the piano, for example. You don't have to know that. So, um, but your influence comes from, and and you know um, comes from like in your case uh, the minimal music, yes but also funk music and a certain understanding of, of groove, which, um, and this is like, like the next, um, topic I want to talk about, like, yeah. like, um, what is the, um, 
well, I wanted to use the word abstraction, but or maybe that, that's totally wrong. Like maybe what is concretely what makes your kind of groove, your interpretation of the funk influences? Well, I uh, liked already as a small kid rhythm. So till I was quite old, I didn't like ballads, for example. I just liked the, 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 the beat. And when I think back, and I had to really think back also to my childhood when I wrote a book, I was uh, in the beginning in, inspired or drawn to the piano because I saw somebody playing boogie woogie. And actually, that's pattern music totally. It's a kinetic way of organizing movement, uh, sensual impact of grooves. And it developed for me then into jazz and Brazilian music, Bartok, Gershwin. And then it spread it out to all sorts of, of groove things. I relatively late actually liked pure funk, like James Brown's funk. It was a bit for me too too uh, powerful when I was a child in a certain way. I discovered that later, this simplicity and directness in, in funk music. Uh, so first of all was my affinity to rhythmic music. That's also why I'm careful in naming funk as a main influence for the whole uh, music. I'm, I'm just calling Ronin Sen funk because it has this clearly this attitude also because of the, the way Cosper is able to drum and uh, with his knowledge about funk music. And I liked it also. But what I were always a bit uh, where it stopped was when, when it came to that more crowd-oriented clap your hands way of building things up or, or song-oriented funk music. And I liked always, for example, I studied a long time as a teenager, late teenager, this um, a bootleg videos from Prince when he when he did the show after the show where they sometimes for an hour just had similar grooves transforming into a next one uh, morphing into next one with suddenly cuts where nothing was happening so this was a shocking ritualistic setup <laughs> how to play funk and of course he did not do that in in front of the pop audience, but he did it for this for the people who like that. It's almost a special uh, attitude that you like that stuff, and I like this ritualistic way of of rep repetitive energy load up in funk music that you actually find in a few uh, find that a few bands do this. And of course, also our culture and our circumstances here are very different. We had a, uh, a, a club here called Bozillus, where a guy um, was the, the head and the, 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 somehow the yeah, the initiator. He had that club very long, Beat Kennel. And in this club, we had really night-long sessions. And although this was officially a jazz club, he always checked that not too many people play solos. <laughs> so that that more the groove and the community thing was there. We had a lot of uh, international jazz musicians or groove musicians also there passing by. It was a bit another time than today where everything is more ac academically organized. And Casper was in there first as a drummer, as a very young drummer. I think he was 14 or so. And I 
or even 13 and I came in there with about 14, 15 later than half a year later and we jammed a lot and there was already a lot of pattern music and this guy uh, was also an amateur drummer and the best groove he could do was in seven. So he was not a drummer that actually could play a lot of odd meters but he had a certain movement and this seven beat was his sing. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why we jammed a lot with that seven sing and in there suddenly also it was not important where is this coming from it was sometimes paratribalish organization it was just important to to forget time and hang out there and uh, a lot of that ritualistic energy in groove music uh, inspired me a lot the point for me that uh, I found later was that very often the rhythm section bass player and drummer are just playing something for the others to play over uh, although the the interlocking way with guitars piano and so uh, was also interesting but nobody expected that a drum beat is composed or a bass line is is really composed usually the bass player or the drummer contributed themselves uh, these beats and also in our music of course Casper and several bass players contributed a lot but for me at a certain point of with the consciousness of composing that I learned actually also on the musical uh, music academy, I uh, went more and more into beat balances, ways of how beats and bass lines are organized. What's the meaning of a bass line when you leave away the melody and all of that stuff that we we find, as you named it already before a lot, or in your music, it was also there very early, like uh, like in the the record you did with Sonar on my my label. So. Um, these ideas were there, they, you found them in minimal music, you found it uh, on bootlegs, uh, in jams and stuff. So so it was all there, but to bring it together and then to think about it, like uh, one newspaper once said, I think it was meant ironically in that time, that I'm a scientist of groove. <laughs> and that's almost a paradox, either it grooves or, uh, or otherwise it's uh, science. But to bring that together, I like that because to... To work on beats, interlocking cycles under a microscope was uh, for me something that um, was one of the solutions to to go on with music and shape it into the way I felt comfortable and uh, a music that also I wanted to listen to. So in practical terms, just the um, when your band, let's say Ronin, plays together, how elastic is the time for your in your experiencing i mean right yeah. is can you say something about that well there is time and time first of all one is how elastic is the time that uh, let's say i have a piece that is in uh, quarter note 80 and it needs a certain flow it's composed like this then we work on it and can also change over time uh, uh, um, historic time, how we play, the module can change, has usually a history in a band history also. Uh, so we, we can shape it depending on the level we actually can feel the piece and understand it. But then there is the time, how we phrase, how we organize, uh, how we move as a band by interpreting the measurement of time, like the, the pulse, um, and 
we are in a phase where we really reflect on a higher level. That's also one part in the book, actually, the relation between a bar, measurement, pulse, rhythm in depth, uh, absolute measurement of time, re uh, relative time, phrasing, the feel of time that should be included, incorporated in the band as an organism. And then all these relations, how we can play with that, for example, on the level of ghost notes or the level of stretching and, you know, one plays a bit more uh, laid back, the other more in front. Uh, the, the mix between binary and ternary phrasing and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the main aspects and I think of the main uh, impacts also our bands make to really work with that, not so much with a, an intellectual interesting compositional idea or an interesting melody or an interesting solo, but with these in-between things that happen when people play musical material finally really as a performance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you cannot compose that. That's impossible. You can write about it or you can talk about it and you can experience it with the band. So I find that very fascinating. That's the, the border of, of uh, written and oral culture. And that's one of the main uh, uh, subjects in, in the way I work. Um, to, to work exactly on that and to, to even go deeper and deeper into questions of time. How can we feel that in almost three-dimensional in being in a, in a piece as a space to see things coming, to lean a bit forward uh, in relation to the drummer or to have the snare forward and the bass drum a bit more back and all of that stuff. So I love that. And the, the people in the band have such a, a long history together and the trust that uh, talking about that things is one of our main activity actually when we rehearse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, just thinking back on uh, a record like uh, Randori, for example, um, compared with how your band started to sound uh, maybe in 2014 or uh, like there, you know, just looking from the outside and obviously I've, I've seen you and heard you play a lot of times, but there are also phases when I don't hear the band at all. And then like I hear you guys again and I right. see like there's, there's this, this new understanding, there's this new way of actually playing, like literally playing with, uh, certain parameters of the music that are not even obvious that they are there before you actually start playing with them. So and and that's that's sort of like the main one of the main uh, developments I see in your music is like if you like I said Randori versus Avaze right like it's um, it's this this really um, the result of being present of becoming more and more present with what you do or you could say more aware and what happens is that sort of like like this new this, you, this newly gained processing power that you're somehow opening up in your mind or, you know, in your body, as you say, and suddenly, suddenly you start working with, with more details. And, uh, and, and also even, even just in the way that you do the, uh, the ambient in, uh, interludes between songs, I think has, yep. they have changed considerably, like yep. really, really a lot. And yeah. I've 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 always been a really deep listener, I'd say, and like now I I think that's 
I, I just find that fascinating to, because I look at you as um, somebody that I follow. You know, I follow you as an artist and I'm more interested in the process of how you are, well, in observing how your process unfolds than in the actual results yeah. at any point in time. You know, yeah. and and so 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 there there's a lot of process in your music. Also, the fact that you guys started uh, having the Mondays uh, like 15 years ago or something. I'm not, not yeah. exactly sure. And I think I first first uh, went to a Mondays concert at Bacillus 2007, or I think it yeah. was 2007. Yeah. And um, this dedication, this commitment to keeping to keeping this initial path that you that you took alive for such a long time. Um, what kind of, if at all, uh, compromise or compromises did you have to make in your life? Like how many times did you have to say no to something, for example? <laughs> right? <laughs> well, the, the, the major lesson actually, to learn to say no in every phase. And it also challenged me a lot uh, it was a big risk. I also started doing martial arts and meditation because I feared like uh, being alone with the stuff I do. Um, I find that very important to take care of the old pieces. Uh, I want also to do a backwards learning. I had a lot of uh, discussions with many different artists and many want to go forward, learn forward and also change constantly as a as the example, uh, named is Miles Davis, who said, I don't play old stuff, it's gone. And I have more uh, the idea of, a, of, of um, a, a globe of learning. So a lot of, of the pieces in the beginning and, of, uh, for example, the, the record drum door you mentioned as a radical first Ronin record, is still very important for me. I learned still a lot from that record. And the music is more than the composer or the band. It, it is a certain being that uh, speaks. And sometimes it speaks more, sometimes less. But we as a band learned also many pieces that didn't sound in the beginning. And we even, I was on, also under attack as a composer that the piece might be not really good. For example, module 47 sounded like a jazz cool etude when we played it uh, with the metric modulation. It was almost stupid. Uh, so we didn't put it on on hold on. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we, we took it again and suddenly uh, we started to understand it. And then it came on to Lyria. Then it disappeared again. It was one of our hits finally. And it disappeared again. And now we started to play it again in a quartet because we had it as a quintet there. And new aspects were opening. So so for what I'm really thankful is that I I, I was insecure so about how quickly to go on. I, I wanted to take care about my own development, not so much to, to say this is invented by me, but to learn something and I discovered really that in this way of working is such a variety of learning uh, as a musician, questions of time, questions of rhythms, questions of orientation, questions of phrasing, dynamics, dramaturgy, dramaturgy that it's really worth it to, to do also 
learning into all directions of, of uh, your own history. And uh, that's really interesting then to compare Rondori with Avase, for example, because there must be a, a shift into new land of new, like uh, uh, on Avase, the 58 is, I wanted also to challenge Casper and the players by having something, but I wanted to challenge myself by being even more simple than before, because this five against seven is not really complex in terms of patterns. Like on Lirio, you have much more complex stuff happening in terms of composition, but the result and the way to play it is, is much more complex, how to move in that uh, three-dimensional space of these multi-dimensional patterns. So, so this... Uh, this process is very important, and I appreciate the, from the very beginning, uh, from the from even pre-beginning, module 15, for example, that is on Rondori, goes back to 1992 uh, or something, to a jam that was a piece that was called Go Between, uh, very early, where five against four, against seven, against nine was a topic in a more funk sense, so... I find that still very fascinating. I wouldn't say this is over or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's something that we have in common is this this idea to to go back to you could say just the basics or the rudiments, the rudiments exactly. of one's thinking yeah. or the rudiments of one's uh, compositional um, uh, history, right? And then right. see like how can this old thought reflect on my my current being in the world and and what else can i draw from this it's 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 i, it's, I find it I, I find it like maybe the most satisfying aspect of being an artist that i can i can work on on um that that everything i do seems to to an extent as an accumulation but it's not really an accumulation it is it is like everything gets Gets spread wider, so it doesn't. It, it's not a. It's not a, a hill or a mountain of work that I create. It's, it's as if it's kind of like spreading out. Yeah, and it's a universe. It spreads out as a universe. It's also like the basics is in training, martial arts training, a lot of Japanese arts or handcraft arts, also in Europe and all over the planet. It's also always about basics because we are humans and no machines. So you always train the basics. That's normal. Uh, it's a bit a different idea. Then it's more an evolutionary idea, you know, based on the basics than an avant-gardistic idea of change, Western idea of, of constant change. It's an idea of constant connection and uh, evolution. So this is uh, very important. And we need to be also as modest as possible to always relate to that basics if you didn't do that in the training properly, then you can also not do the, the rest. So it's a body, it's not a machine. You cannot just press a, um, <laughs> the knob and then you're already there. Yeah, exactly. And that's where the intellect uh, often is the problem. When the intellect kind of like gives you this delusion that you already know. Right, but the body, the body does not follow, yeah. or is impossible. It's like when when somebody's coming into Aikido training and you still do the the 
the be beginning called Taino Henko. It's a basic exercise of feeling the body and, you know, going out of the line. Mm -hmm. And somebody says after a few trainings or half year, nice, I checked what how Aikido happens. Now I do a bit of tennis and, you know, I can learn there also a lot. Of course, that's true. But probably you will understand that basic exercise more and more, the more you relate it to your development. Yeah. And that's the interesting idea. Yes. So you're in, uh, you're turning 50 this year, right? True. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, what is, what plans do you have for your, for the second half of your life? Well, you never know if it's second half. So, uh, <laughs> I just take every day how it comes and try to finish things. And as I said uh, earlier, um, every Every day a little bit is better than do all at once. And mm -hmm. I'm, I experienced in my life also so far a lot of challenges that they suddenly show up out of the blue. And we need to be thankful for every second we can dedicate to music, families, healthy, developing. You know, one thing is to write a book, but another thing is to write a book and doing recordings while you have three kids and they need to go to gymnasium They have exams they want to eat they want to uh, be in contact with you they want to play instruments and we want to support them and stuff like this so that that's the the daily balance and um, i'm still uh training to get that <laughs> done <laughs> oh yeah a question that i get asked a lot is marcus do you ever sleep and uh well, that's an important question. I actually love sleeping because I think we have wrong uh, understanding of sleeping. I think for creative people, sleeping is ex extremely important. And also the, the way how you sleep and what's, uh, what's your relationship to that. So I find it, I learned to also respect a lot of sleeping time for my creative process. And we can learn like actually a lot here from, from professional sports where uh, so far um, sleeping is an important tool to bring your body into a different way of understanding itself. To say it simple, I read once that the uh, Swiss tennis player Roger Federer sleeps 11 hours regularly. Mm -hmm. Of course... This is on a physical training level and uh, match level uh, very much. But as musicians, we underestimate our strong presence that is somewhere between chess and boxing, like one of Shaw's record is called, you know, chess boxing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what we do. And it needs a lot of presence. And if we take it serious, we have to take care. And that's the right question. How much and how do you sleep? Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but you're not asking me now, I hope. Well, I can tell you that when the child is older, it gets yes. better. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wonderful. I, um, maybe one, last, one last question. Yeah. How does what, let's just say we do, mm -hmm. and let's include everybody else, resonates with what we do yeah how does this relate to healing and mental well-being 
Well, I learned, for example, in that situation now uh, that a lot of people I know, like you, are quite balanced, although this is a challenge, because they do what they love and they do it on a high level of craftsmanship, dedication, attention, awareness, and also love for the thing they do and the community that shares that, including the family. So if you ask me if this is not the most important thing to heal and to be balanced, what we call, then uh, I don't know. I, I think the way we work and the way we reflect the work and also with the modesty of staying really uh, attentive and in training is very important for healing in the sense of finding your stability day by day. And finally, if you ask me directly about my music, then uh, everybody can think and hear and feel in the about the music what they like. But my main goal is to give a, a positive, challenging, but also essential energy that la launches yourself and your ideas and also your capacity to inspire other people. Um, that's healing in the sense of starting to think about what is really essential. Yeah. And this sounds so simple and sounds almost like a management seminar, but I, I, I mean it very uh, basic, like you called it before, uh, basics. We should do that every day. That's clear. And I guess many people avoid that question every day for several reasons. I have to ask them because otherwise my whole system uh, breaks very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wonderful, Nick. Yeah. So um, I would I would appreciate if we could maybe you know talk again in six months or so, and um, continue where we left off today. Good. Yeah. We do that. Yes. And uh, thank you also very much, and I find it inspiring because you also have a deeper understanding and a lot of experiences yourself. And then a talk like this is more than talking about your new record. It's, it's about why we make music and why this is so essential for us and why this can be inspiring for a lot of other people. So thank you very much for giving a lot of effort into that and also do that with other people and share that with uh, the people who might resonate for that. <laughs> You're welcome, and I'm I'm happy to actually uh, that we actually talked about the, your new record, and yeah. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> good, good. Okay, thank you. I'm okay. looking forward to your feedback. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you very much, Nick, and uh, see you soon. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, see you soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye. -bye.